Well, today we conclude our sermon series on the book of Ruth. And I don't know about you, but I've loved journeying through this verse by verse. We've learned that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, these are real people with real struggles. And sometimes we can identify with them. So I invite you to turn your Bibles or your devices to Ruth chapter 4. You, Ruth chapter 4 verse 1 is where we're going to begin. In case you missed some of the past couple weeks, let me give you a quick update on where we are. In Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to a guy named Elimelech. His name means God is king. At a time of the judges when there is no king, we're introduced to a man whose name means God is king. He's got a wife named Naomi. He has two sons, Malon and Kilion. And because of a famine, they moved to Moab, a detestable place. But at least they had food. So they moved to Moab, and there Elimelech dies. And after he dies, his sons Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women. Well, over the next ten years, both Malon and Kilion also die. And Naomi, his wife, whose name meant sweetie pie or sweetness, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are all left widows in Moab. Knowing that she needs to be cared for, Naomi returns to Bethlehem and Ruth decides to go with her, uttering that wonderful plea in chapter 1, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That in the midst of tragedy, Ruth turned to trust in God while Naomi turned in bitterness, anger at God for what God had taken away. In chapter 2, Naomi and Ruth are in Bethlehem, and Ruth begins to glean fields, picking up grain to help give them some food. And she wanders into the field of a man named Boaz, who we find later is a kinsman redeemer. Boaz was incredibly gracious, so kind, protective of her, and cared for the immigrant and followed what God's word had to say. We find out he's a kinsman redeemer, which was a really important thing because we learned from Israel, his, Israel's history that God said that the family is essentially to stick together, that if a family member gets sold into slavery, it's a kinsman redeemer's responsibility to redeem that family member, to buy them out of slavery. Or, for example, if your brother passes away, or a male family member, the closest male family member passes away, then you have this obligation or responsibility to redeem his estate. And you would have a child with the widow, and if the child was a male, then the, the, all the estate would flow through and he would inherit that. And so we see in chapter 3, Ruth approaches Boaz asking him to be the kinsman redeemer for her. And she does this in this interesting fashion. She lays at his feet. And she asked him, cover me. And we see this picture of the gospel, how we lay at the feet of a master, asking him to cover us with the blood of Jesus, to take us under his care. And in chapter 3, as it ends, Boaz says he loved to redeem Ruth, he loved to marry Ruth, but there's another relative closer. And we're on edge at the end of chapter 3. Who is Ruth going to marry? Let's look at chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there just as the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went and sat down. Now, legal transactions, judicial proceedings, official business always happened at the city gate. Now, we're not talking about a gate like Matt would sell at Rudy's farm store. We're talking about a structure, a building. This was not a woven wire fence with a metal gate like you may be picturing, it was a, a building saying this is the entrance into the city. The city would have maybe one entrance in a small city, maybe several entrances in a large city, but it was a fortified gate so that enemies could not come in and they did not want people of other 
countries or other tribes to be able to enter the city to see where's their water supply? How many fighting men do they have? Where do they keep their weapons? And so all the business was conducted at the wall of the city in this room called the gate. And it's this assembly point, like the courthouse, that Boaz goes to find this man. And we see this same picture as in Ruth chapter 2, that this other man just so happened to walk by at the right time. And we know it's not a coincidence, but it's a God incidence that God orchestrated that in verse 1. Verse 2, Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you. And I am next in line. Ruth knows that she can't really own the land. And she needs someone to purchase the estate and to purchase, not purchase, but to redeem both Ruth and Naomi into this family. Now, this man is thinking that if I take the estate, it means I take Naomi, but I also get this really big piece of land. But Naomi is older. She's not going to produce children, so there's no threat because she's just an older lady that I'm just going to have to take care of for a few years. And when she passes away, I've got this land to pass down to my children. I will redeem it, he says. Our hearts sink. Because we would have ruthed the end up with Boaz. He loves her. She loves him. And here this other man, a nameless man, is going to marry Ruth. Can you imagine the look on Ruth's face as she's hearing this transpire? Then verse 5. Then Boaz said, oh, he's got an idea. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz is like, oh, I forgot to mention one little thing. When you redeem the land and you redeem Naomi, you're also redeeming the whole family, and that includes Ruth. Now, Ruth is of childbearing age, and Ruth, when you marry her, you will have a son with her, and the son will get the estate because we want the name of Elimelech to be able to continue. We don't want his name to be erased from the genealogy. And the man starts to question. Suddenly this land he's thought about purchasing, the land that he envisioned being passed down to his sons, is now going to be passed to another son that is born of a Moabite woman. At this, verse 6, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. The stranger doesn't like the idea of having a child with this Moabite woman, does not want to uh, jeopardize his own estate. And so his yes becomes no because he was not willing to sacrifice. And when his yes becomes no, that means cue the orchestra music. Boaz can marry Ruth. I mean, it's like, it's like the, you see confetti flying, rose petals dropping. They can, get to, they can get together. Verse 7, Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. 
This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. That's an odd way to close a deal. I don't know if you've ever been at the bank buying a piece of property, you know, in that room or the closing office of a closing agent. You don't need to sign, just give me your shoe. Like that's what it's, that's what it's essentially saying. But that's the way they sign deals. And the man hands over the sandal. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy shares that when a person refused to be the kinsman redeemer, it was kind of a disgraceful thing. And they would hand over the shoe to the widow and the widow had the chance to spit in his face. No spitting in the face here, but he did hand over the shoe. And then it's almost like a scene from Rocky. The shoe's handed over. Everybody's gathering around. You can picture maybe they embrace one another. And Boaz lets out his last plea. The last words Boaz will say in the entire book of Ruth are right here. He announced to the elders and all the people, so a big crowd, and Boaz is standing there in front of them. Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear among the family or from his hometown, today you are my witnesses. You see, God provides a redeemer for Ruth. The past several months of angst, the past decade of tragedy is all taken away in this moment of redemption. Certainly we have the the pain of the past, but there's certain a future, a hope for a future. Ruth's been redeemed because Boaz was willing to pay the price to get her back. Redemption happened. And can you imagine Naomi's excitement? She goes from bitter to thrilled. From empty to full because she had been redeemed. Perhaps you've heard the story about a little boy who built a sailboat with his own hands, he got the wood, he assembled it together in a, in a kit and nailed the nails in, put the glue on, uh, all the things he needed to do, painted the boat, tarred it so it would be weather tight. And one day he wanted to test the boat on a little stream. So he goes through the stream and the stream was rather fast moving. He was afraid his boat might sink, but much to his surprise, he had built a really sturdy boat and the boat just took off, floated. The wind was blowing it, the stream was pushing it. And soon the little boy could not keep up with the boat that he had built. He walked back to his home with his head at the ground because he had lost the boat that he had made. A couple weeks later, he's walking through town and he passes by a secondhand store. And in the window, they've got his boat. He walks inside. He looks over. He notices this has got to be my boat. It's got the right uh, scratches. It's got the nail marks, the place where I missed the nail with a hammer. This is my boat. And he tells the shop owner... Thank you, I found my boat. This is my boat. And he picks it up to leave. But then the shop owner says, no, you can't leave. I paid for that boat. Someone brought it to me and sold it to me. You've got to pay for it. The little boy's devastated. He doesn't have the money to pay for it. So he spends the next few weeks saving his pennies and nickels and dimes and comes back into the shop and buys the boat back. And as he's leaving the shop, he utters to that little boat, You're twice mine. First I made you, and then I bought you. Isn't that a picture of what Jesus has done for us? First God made us, and then he bought us. 
You see, the story of Ruth is not just about the redemption of Ruth, but it's to tell us that God has provided a redeemer for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says these words, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins because of God's great grace. That Jesus paid an incredible price, his very life, to buy us back. That this story about Ruth and Boaz is a much bigger story that God is not just seeing about Ruth being redeemed, but it's a story to communicate to us that God is redeeming his people. That from Genesis 3, when the garden scene and the Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and God saw this separation between him and man, since that time he's been seeking to redeem his people. And today you can be redeemed as well. When I was a kid, we used to drink out of these. How many of you used to drink out of glass Coke bottles, or maybe still do? It just tastes different in a glass Coke bottle, doesn't it? I mean, just wonderful. And I remember when I was a kid, we'd buy, they were actually larger bottles than this, I believe. We would buy these, and about every couple of weeks, we'd go to the Winn-Dixie where we shopped, and my mom would return these. Any of you ever do that before? And they would take the bottles, they would buy them back, wash them, fill them back up, and then restore them, send them back out. Anyone know what they called that process? It was called redemption. That's what the Coca-Cola company called it, redemption. And the places that received the bottles were known as redemption centers. Folks, in a much more powerful way, Jesus Christ has bought us back. He has clean, cleansed us. He has filled us and restored us. And the church is a place that should be called a redemption center. A place where people come to be redeemed by Jesus Christ, the master and powerful savior of it all. That the redeemer does just that. He takes a dirty person, buys them, cleans them, restores them to a new life. And the truth of the gospel is you can be redeemed today. We are redeemed by simply, we saw in Ruth chapter 3, laying at the feet of the savior. Laying at the feet of the master and saying, cover me. Cover me with your blood. Cover my sin. Put me under your protection. Put me under your care. I want to be redeemed. And you can be redeemed today. A few months ago, I was traveling on Delta Airlines and I was checking in at the counter. And it was such a, you know, those long processes. I don't even get into that. But this lady who was waiting on me after a very long day, I looked at her name tag. She was from some African country and I thought maybe she pronounced her name differently then I would pronounce it. It was R-E-D-E-E-M-E-D. I said, how do you pronounce your name? She said, redeemed. So how did you get that name? She said, my dad's a pastor, and he wanted me to wear that name. And so now I have a name that matches who I am. I am redeemed. And brothers and sisters, each of us who have been bought by the blood of Jesus could wear a name tag saying, I am redeemed. The story continues, verse 13. 
So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. You see, this redemption brought about a new life. The redemption brought about a new life. And that's what happens in our lives, that after we are redeemed, God gives us a new birth, a new life. You remember when Paul said that the old is gone, the new has come. That the redemption leads to new life, a new birth. Can you imagine the look on Naomi's face? Just two chapters ago, she was bitter. Mara, don't call me sweetness ever again. I'm bitter because the Lord has been ill to me. The Lord has taken everything away from me. I am empty. And here we see Naomi sitting in a chair, holding a baby. I saw an 11-day-old baby this morning out in the foyer. Just such a sweet, precious little baby. And here's Naomi cradling the baby. And there's something about seeing a grandmother hold a baby. I've been in many hospital rooms after a child's been born as the pastor coming and visiting the family. And if there's a grandmother in the room, there's no chance Pastor Michael is holding the baby. No chance. And the only thing worse is if there's two grandmothers in the room and only one baby. You can cut the tension with a knife, I tell you. This grandmother's holding her baby. She's now full. She left Moab empty, had lost it all. But now because of the grace of God, she's redeemed, has a grandson and a future. I bet she even let him call her sweetie pie. This morning, we are taking communion to remind us of the redemption that was offered to us by Jesus Christ. Communion is meant to be a reminder to us. God knows that we're forgetful people. Perhaps you've heard the story about the man who's in his backyard doing some yard work and a friend, the neighbor is there across in his yard and he tells his neighbor about this great movie we watched. My wife and I watched a great movie last night and the neighbor says, oh yeah, what's the name of it? He goes, I cannot remember. He goes, what's the name of that flower that's got thorns on it that's really pretty that people give each other on Valentine's Day? The man says, Rose? He said, yeah, that's right. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that movie we watched last night? (laughs) God knows we're forgetful people. And that's why he gave us communion. To help us remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we take communion, the bread reminds us of the body of Jesus. The the cup reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was poured out. The Bible says that there's two conditions for taking communion. One that we are a born-again believer. Oftentimes that's denoted by baptism. That communion is for followers of Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you to abstain from taking communion, but instead to join me down front at the end of the service so we can share with you what it means to follow Jesus as your Savior. The second requirement is Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we must confess our sin before we come to communion. Here's what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Each man must examine himself. So we like to do that right now as we go to the Lord in prayer. I'd like to give you some time of silent prayer for you to examine your hearts, for you to confess your personal sin, and ask God to forgive you, whether that was this morning, yesterday, or a decade ago. Let's come before him to confess our sin. Lord, we come before you with a prayer confession asking you to forgive us. Lord, we know we are sinners. We know we've done wrong. I pray you would bring to our minds the sins that we've committed. We know you've paid for our sin on the cross, but you ask us to go through a process of confessing our sin to remind ourselves of our need for forgiveness. Lord, so we bow humbly at your feet. Confident that you will cleanse us, redeem us by the blood of King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. It's the Last Supper and Jesus took the bread. You take the bread and place it in your hand. He said, this bread symbolizes my body. It was the night before his death, the night before he would go to the cross. And he knew on the cross his body would be beaten, broken. But he willingly gave his body for his people. The last night before his death, Jesus takes his followers and says, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. Jesus, thank you for your body given for us in obedience to the Father. Amen.
You remember in the garden, Jesus was praying, Father, take this cup from me. And we wonder, what's that cup Jesus is referring to? Was he afraid to go to the cross? And we know that's not the case. In fact, much of, many of the times in the Old Testament, a cup is referring to being full of God's wrath. And Jesus is saying, Father, if you could take your wrath from me in any other way, please do it. But not, your, not my will, but your will be done. And there on the cross, Jesus drank the very last drop of God's wrath, and he turned that cup over and said, It is finished. And to symbolize what Jesus did on the cross, that same night with his followers, he brought out the cup. Hebrews and Leviticus tell us that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And Jesus says, Tomorrow I'm going to the cross. And there I will shed blood for the forgiveness of your sin. He took the cup and said, This is my blood poured out to you for the forgiveness of sin. Take and drink. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice on the cross of your blood, of your body, to redeem us. Help us to live as redeemed people devoted to you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we come to the end of the book of Ruth. An empty grandmother now sitting in a rocking chair holding a baby as the scene fades to black. If you were in a movie theater, that's what it would look like. And have you been in a movie before where the movie's over, you're wiping a tear from your eye, it's had a great ending, the baby's been born, and you're ready to leave. And you start to pick up your things, you start to walk out of the theater, when all of a sudden, something appears on the screen. This is the moment we see here in the book of Ruth. A moment that... No M. Night Shyamalan or Christopher Nolan movie can match. As we see these closing verses that the narrator staves until the very end. The woman, women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wait, What? You mean this baby that Naomi, that Ruth and Boaz had was the grandfather of David, King David? You mean Ruth and Boaz were the great-grandparents of the greatest king in Israel's history? That these are not just two ordinary people, that these are the great-grandparents of King David. And we quickly see that God's story in the book of Ruth was not just about a Moabite widow and a distinguished Israelite gentleman, but rather the story in the book of Ruth was the story of Israel's redemption. That God was preparing a way for King David to be born. That in the darkest time of Israel's history... God was weaving the way. And perhaps that field that Boaz bought from Naomi, perhaps that was the same field that their great-grandson David would be keeping the sheep in when an old man named Samuel would walk up to him and say, one day you will be the king. God 
use Naomi, Ruth, Boaz to provide a king for Israel. But it wasn't just David, but from the lineage of David comes an even greater king. A king not just for Israel, but a king for us. You see, through the lineage of Boaz and Ruth to Obed to Jesse, eventually came King Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, it says this, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. If you continue down the book of Matthew chapter 1, you'll see the very last name in that passage. And Mary gave birth to Jesus. You see, the story of Ruth and Boaz is actually the story that God used to bring about our redemption. That God was providing a king for us. Isn't it shocking? That it's not about the Moabites and brothers and sisters, it's not about us, but it's about God's glory on display. It's about God's glorious providence. It's about God's glorious sovereignty that sometimes when we least expect it, when we least see it, we're in the midst of tragedy that God is still weaving His grand story for His glory in our lives. Could God be using your tragedy to set the stage for His triumph? Brothers and sisters, God has great plans in store for us. He's got great plans in store for his people, great stands and plans in store for his church. And we trust him. Today, maybe you need to lay at his feet and say, Lord Jesus, cover me. I trust you because I believe you are weaving a plan for your glory. Let's stand and pray. Father, Father, we praise you that you had a plan all along. That Naomi walking, or that Ruth not walking in the Boaz's field was not just about some grain. That Boaz meeting the Redeemer was not just about a business deal at the gate. But it was about your plan, your sovereignty to bring about a king for Israel and David, but ultimately bring about a king over all creation, Christ Jesus. And today, Lord, we bow to your sovereign will. We trust you for our future. Lord, would you forgive our past? Would you redeem our past and set us apart for our future? following your plan for your glory, for your namesake. In the name of Jesus, we pray.